Yo, this episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit GBT.com to learn more. What's up, Warriors? We're here with another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast with me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Hey, Dr. Z. What up? I heard the other day your uh, people from your homeland in Canada sent you a, an email to say how much they'd love to have Dr. Z come up and do some sickle cell stuff up there. Yeah, man. Uh, sickle cell awareness month has been no joke. We, uh, we're definitely generating a lot of awareness and a lot of warriors out there are showing us a lot of love. There's a lot of love for cheat codes coming through. We appreciate you all. There is going to be a Dr. Z cameo at a sickle cell association of Canada meeting talking about racial equity in sickle cell disease. So I'm excited about that. So in Canada, what do they call the last letter of the alphabet? You know, in Canada, I would not be Dr. Z because in Canada, the last letter of the alphabet is Z. Dr. Z. I hate Z, that sickle so cell much. Canada. I hate that <laughs> so much. Uh, it, sounds, it sounds like a bad guy in the Superman movie. <laughs> All right, Warriors, enough of that nonsense. Let's get to our next segment. You ready? Let's get to it. All right. So now uh, for my favorite segment, when uh, Dr. Z gets me updated on uh, what's going on in his uh, Facebook and Twitter and what he's watching on YouTube and what's going on, Dr. Z. Oh, Dr. Mike, you know, it's been Sickle Cell Awareness Month. It's been wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. You know, we have we are really lucky that we are providers for a group of individuals that are so in tune, so connected. They are rightful and exceptional advocates in this space. And I love that so much. But but today I want to talk to you about something a little bit different. I've recently been putting a lot of thought into standardized care for sickle cell patients. I've been putting a lot of thought into why the care that somebody gets at an emergency room in Detroit looks different from the care somebody gets 40 miles west of Detroit at a different hospital. Forget that. Why is the care from one provider in an emergency room different from the care of another provider in the same emergency room? We have this brewing problem of a lack of consensus guidelines around very practical things in sickle cell disease to the point that you could sit down with 50 sickle cell experts and there's no consensus on which IV fluids at what rate are the best, okay? IV fluids we're talking about here. You could sit down with 50 sickle cell experts and have no consensus on whether people should be using Toradol and Motrin during pain crisis. I guess the reason that I wanted to talk about this is to sort of start a conversation about how do we fix this? How do we get to a point where we can, as providers, start sharing our thoughts around the practicalities beyond the grand statements in, in for example, the NASM report that recently came out, which is important super important for, for the direction we're going in. But what about the practicalities? And, and, and the NHLBI report in 2014 is, is good, right? It's good. But, but even there, m- most of the things that are troublesome 
all end with discuss with an expert in sickle cell disease. How do we move past this? How do we go forward from here? What 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 are we what are we in need of that we're not doing? And I, I've been putting a lot of thought into this. Um, I talked to I talked to Dr. Drew the other day about this, and he was talking about this concept. Dr. Of, Drew Campbell. Yeah, he was ta- from Children's National. Um, you know, obviously, someone who was at U of M before this, down the road from us, right? And he was talking. He he put me onto this concept of institutional culture and how sometimes culture supersedes science. And that sometimes what's been working somewhere is what happens because it's been working. And it may not be something that you can cite or find an article for or pull data for, but it's just something that's happened in this certain place for decades and patients have done well. So we were talking about how this is pervasive and this is a thing that is very true, but I don't know what forum these discussions are happening in. You know, I, I kind of love this, Dr. Z, because I feel like we spend a lot of time, you know, just, just as a world, but especially as providers, you know, focused on things that don't work. Like, you know, why is this taking so long to get my patient pain medicines in the ER? And, you know, that's important. If you've got stuff at your hospital that works, and probably, you know, a lot of people do, that's a good discussion too. And it's a positive one, you know. Tell me what are good things that your patients like, or, or let's ask the patients, what are things that work? What, uh, what do you like about your sickle cell care? You know, can we reproduce those things at other places? Because I, I think some of the things you're talking about are, you know, they're, they're tough things to answer. What, uh, what IV fluid at what rate? I, I think, you know, we always did things here at Children's a certain way. And I, I think, you know, you started thinking about that and you asked, you know, why do we do that? And I said, you know, that's how we've always done it. There's not really studies and there are a little bit of studies, but it's really hard to do a good study to answer those kind of questions, to talk the NIH into funding, uh, you know, a multi-million dollar study to decide if you use half normal saline or normal saline at one times maintenance or one and a half times maintenance, it's, you know, it's probably not going to get funded. It doesn't sound, you know, so cutting edge, but it really is an important question. But I, you know, it's probably one that's never going to get answered. There's two things, you know, maybe we need a forum where we're talking about those really practical things, you know, those really day-to-day things. And I think, in a in the, in, like you said, in this positive, what's working? What, what are you doing that's working? Because I, I remember, talking to our ICU doctors. And when patients come in in sepsis, they do partial exchange transfusions and probably they're getting rid of cytokines and and improves the outcome. And it's not something that everybody does, but it's something that they do here that works. And maybe if more people hear about that, they try it in their patient and they say, oh, that really works here too. Um, You start learning things and you can maybe make some changes you want to eventually test those things in rigorous studies, but in the meantime, you know, best practices is an okay way. Well, like one of the things that we were talking about was like, we have a hundred kids here in Detroit on chronic exchange transfusion. And of those hundred kids on chronic exchange transfusion, there's probably four kids who have a port. That's unheard of in the United States. Yeah. Ports get infected, ports clot, ports cause a lot of problems. And so we really try very hard to keep those out. And I, you know, I think that's a good 
a good thing we do here. Now it's not always easy, but but you know if it means that somebody doesn't get sepsis and wind up in the hospital or get really sick or get a blood clot or all all of the things that go with that, I think that you know that can be really valuable. It's such a small example. There's bigger examples now, right? So what for example, I'm going to ask you more practical questions like when do you start a patient with SC disease on hydroxyurea? When you're on hydroxyurea, when do you think about starting Endari? When do you think about adding Oxprida? How do you combine these therapies? If you have the opportunity to combine all four, how are you doing it? If you are doing it, what are you monitoring? Are there any labs that you're getting? Are you following any liver toxicities, renal toxicities? These types of practical questions are never discussed openly. I think there are, you know, ways to do this like formally, like there's something called the Delphi process where you get a bunch of experts together and you ask them a question like this and everybody sort of shares the way they do it. And then you talk the pluses and minuses, maybe bring in some evidence. Then you ask everybody again, what do you think is the best way to do it until you come to sort of a consensus about it? That's a formal way to do it, but I think maybe it's a, Maybe it's a discussion board. Maybe it's, and things are always changing, right? Like three years ago, we didn't have to have a discussion about when do you start these other things because they just didn't exist yet. I think it's important. I think, you know, a lot of times you go to scientific meetings or you go give a talk somewhere and you think it's about the meeting and you think it's about the talk, but a lot of it is about those hallway conversations where you talk to Dr. Dr. Drew Chicago and say, how do you do this? Or I had a patient that had this. And they say, oh, I had a patient like that. And you, I mean, you learn from each other. I think that's so important to what we do. And I, I love that. I mean, you're Mr. Uh, social media. There's probably a social media venue to, to really work on this kind of thing, have that discussion. Probably. And, and, and maybe, the right, maybe the right way to do this is to apply for like one of those Excel grants and figure out, because this is access to care in its own right. And, and you're not coming to... Um, you know, you're, there's not going to be like a meta-analysis and you're not going to be able to like, I mean, this is a rare disease with a handful of experts. This is at best going to be anecdotal, but but sometimes anecdotes is what saves a patient's life, right? Especially in this type of setting where there are a lot of complicated and complex patients. I mean, me and you recently just had this experience with one of our thalassemia patients. Yeah, We had a colleague chime in from a different hospital on a complicated thalassemia patient and gave us some really great suggestions, helped us think a little bit outside the box. And there's no science to what he told us. There's no paper. It's- I mean, I think this patient's probably unique in the universe. There's probably not another one exactly like this. And he just gave us his practical experience. And Yeah. As a guy who treats a whole lot of thal patients, uh, this is how I would think about it. And I mean, to his credit, he said, you know what, this is so unique. I'm going to call two other people. I think know a ton about this. And, and I think that's led to like, we need to call two other people about this. And, and, and that happens a lot, right? We all do that. We all call each other all the time. I was like, maybe we need to start documenting those conversations, those hallway conversations about how to manage the complexities of sickle cell. Disease. Yeah. I think there's some really nice venues like, like the American society of pediatric hematology oncology has a, a listserv where people sometimes throw out, uh, you know, my patient's got all of this stuff going on. It's really complicated. And people all over the country, you know, shout out to Monica Hulbert. She'll always jump in on the sickle cell ones. Heaney, they always say, you know, 
brilliant evidence-based things. And, uh, uh, you know, it's an opportunity for everybody to sort of learn from this, you know, challenging case. All right, man. Well, that that's sort of what I had on my mind today. I know it's a little different, a little out there, but uh, that's what's happening now. Thanks, Dr. Z. All right, Dr. Mike, I think we are going to do things a little different for this segment, man. We have been touching on all sorts of words. We've done some medical terminology. We've done some research terminology. You know, the hospital is an interesting place because it's really a living organism. And this living organism has a lot of parts. And a lot of times I walk into my sickle cell warrior rooms and I'll say, who have you seen today? And, and, and they will sort of look at me quizzically and be like, I don't know, man, a lot of people have been in this room today. And I recognize that the, the way that we as physicians understand the, the way the hospital works, what the hierarchy in the hospital looks like, who interacts with the patient and why they interact with the patient is really easy for us to understand, but it may not be so simple or so well explained to the warriors or the caregivers. Um, so I thought that you could help us break down how that, how that looks. What are the, who are the different types of medical staff that, that patients encounter? Yeah, I, I think this is a great topic because there are so many different roles in the hospital and it is confusing. I mean, sometimes it's even confusing for me. And I think, you know, a lot of people know, you know, Dr. Zed is my sickle cell doctor, but. Uh, Dude, if you keep saying that, it's going to catch on. <laughs> and if it catches on, I'm going to quit. <laughs> so I'll, I'll stop. All right. But they may be like, hey, this other doctor came in and asked me this whole story. And then I saw another doctor and they asked me the whole story. And then this other doctor came in and took an x-ray. And who are all these people? So there really are just a ton of people throughout the hospital. There, you know, probably from the minute you walk in, you meet uh, usually a nurse who does triage and they figure out where you should go in the hospital. Then uh, you may meet a registration clerk who takes your insurance information and uh, gets you put into the computer. So you've got a little armband so they don't give you the wrong medicine and gives you stickers. And, and then you may meet a medical assistant or a medical office assistant or someone who will put you in a, in a room and they may take your vital signs. And um, sometimes they may double as a phlebotomist who draws your blood or starts an IV. There are a lot of different medical staff, um, including resident doctors. So, you know, as you become a doctor, you go through a lot of training. So you might start with medical students. Medical students usually have short white coats. Uh, they're usually really friendly and have lots of time, spend a lot of time with patients. You know, to that point, man, we got to break right there for a second and just say, when we talk about reducing the bias in medical providers, that's where it's starting. So warriors, when you see that little short coat walk into your room, that's the person who, if you're going to make a difference, if there's anybody in that system that you're interacting with that might actually have some compassion, can have an opinion changed, it's that short coat medical trainee that walks in who wants to know everything about you. So have an honest conversation with them. For sure. And I, you know, I can see coming in as a patient, how a lot of this stuff seems repetitive and redundant and not helpful. And, 
you might think, I don't want to deal with this medical student. How is that going to you know, help? I need to see the real doctor. But I think it's really important. Everybody needs to learn. Everybody needs to train. And like you said, you know, this is going to be a doctor's first experience with sickle cell patients. I mean, we talked with Dr. Vijay Shankaran, who's just a star and has made a huge difference in this field. And he talks about what got him into it was maybe an interaction he had with a patient one day when he was a medical student. So I think, you know, everybody in, in this hospital system is important. Everybody's got a role. You know, sometimes it, it can be too much and it can seem like a lot of people, but please try to be patient with the medical students. Once people finish medical school, after four years of medical school, they graduate. And at that point, they're, you know, Dr. So-and-so MD, and uh, they go on to do a residency. And a residency is an extended training period. And usually um, there's some specialty focus to it. So you might do your residency in internal medicine to become an adult doctor or pediatrics to become a pediatric doctor or surgery to become a surgeon or any, any sort of doctor. And those are usually somewhere between three years long. And I guess if you want to be a, a neurosurgeon, seven years or eight years long um, after medical school. And then when people get done with that, sometimes they do subspecialization. So they may um, decide, I want to be a hematologist. So I'm going to do an extra three years of training in hematology. So they might be an internal medicine doctor who does adult hematology or a, a pediatric doctor who does pediatric hematology. But there are all sorts of other fellows too. So that during this training, they're called fellows. They're sort of becoming subspecialists. So they may be an internal medicine resident trained doctor who's now learning to be a cardiologist. Um, so those are fellows. So they're usually a little bit older. They're really knowledgeable about, about their field and usually pretty passionate about it. When they graduate and they take a job and they become sort of the supervising doctor or the attending and so that's usually the person who's making all the final decisions and has to sign off on everything and has the most experience. And then, you know, you may see different specialties. So you may be, you know, in the emergency room. So you're seeing a person who's a resident in emergency medicine or maybe a fellow doing pediatric emergency medicine. And then you'll probably see the attending too. But then they may say, oh, we need to get the hematologist in and boy, your heart's going pretty fast. So we want to have the cardiologist see it too. And then you might see the cardiology fellow and the resident who's doing the hemonc rotation. So you, you really could see a lot of different people. And then there are all sorts of other people you might encounter in the hospital. You know, you might see a psychologist who, you know, help with mental health issues. You may see a physical therapist if you need some muscular rehabilitation. We work really closely with social workers. And um, they sometimes help us when people are having problems. It might be, you know, people are having a problem getting to their appointments and they need some support for transportation or their water's getting shut off at their house and they need um, some help with that or they need help finding a job or with insurance or things like that. Caregivers need FMLA paperwork filled out, things like this. Yeah. Absolutely. So that they're, you know, people who really try to help with social support and uh, get you into to the system. And then if you know if you need an x-ray, you may get wheeled down there by a transportation person and um, see a radiology technician who takes the x-ray. And then you'll probably never see a radiologist because they're hiding in a little dark room in the basement and they'll read your x-ray. So, uh, you know, the hospital is full of a lot of different people. And I think it's perfectly okay to say, hey, who are you? What is your role? Are you the 
resident? Are you the attending? Are you the phlebotomist? Are you my medical office assistant? What, you know, what is your role here? I, th I think it's important because there's some things might be an appropriate question for one person and, and not for another. I think I also left out, uh, I didn't say much about nurses. I think everybody knows what nurses do, but uh, they're so important to our team and nurse practitioners. So some people will go through nursing, they'll be experienced and decide that they want to do a little bit more in the way of diagnosis and treatment plan making. And so they'll go back and get a master's degree and do some clinical training and become a nurse practitioner. And often they'll work with a doctor, but sometimes you might see them on their own. Um, and they often they can spend a little bit more time with you and make sure you're getting all your screening done, and um, check up on things. And then there's another similar role called a physician assistant. And so usually this is somebody who's gotten a bachelor's degree of some kind and they decided they want to be a medical care provider and they go get a master's degree in, in training and again, you know, how to diagnose, how to treat diseases. And, and so they, they may see you as well, again, often with a physician overseeing that or, or occasionally on their own. Lots of different providers in the hospital. It takes a village. It, it does. I mean, it, it's a it's huge teamwork. All of those pieces are important and everyone has their own role. And uh, so, you know, look, look out for all those people and if you, if you don't know why they're there, ask for sure. Yeah, that's great advice, Dr. Mike. Thanks for breaking that down for everybody. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, let's get to our next segment. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community. Dr. Mike, man, this next guest who uh, we were able to snag for our podcast is, um, I want to say she's a friend of mine. and. I say that with pause because I've never actually met her in person. I seen her present something at Ash one time, but really our friendship stems from Twitter. Oh, so she's like one of your 5,000 friends. <laughs> you know, I keep a really exclusive circle. It just happens that those 5,000 <laughs> people tend to tend to gravitate towards sickle cell disease. So this is somebody who I feel like is one of the few people who's on my wavelength. Her energy around sickle cell disease is palpable. Why don't you tell us a little bit about her? Dr. Sheethal Jacob is an assistant professor at University of Indiana and Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis, and she runs the sickle cell program there and has for the last few years. And, you know, often we have on really seasoned experts, um, but I'm excited to have on one of the rising stars who's going to become a seasoned expert. She's uh, done a lot of work in sickle cell already. She's got great training. So she did her fellowship at uh, University of Pittsburgh um, with the great group there with, uh, at the time, Dr. Krishnamurthy was there and Dr. Cotto and, and Dr. Gladwin and, and has been a healthcare systems researcher who really made a lot of impact in, in just a few years um, and, and great doctor. And, and like you said, Dr. Z, a ton of energy really uh, sharp, focused person who's trying to make the world better for sickle cell patients. All right, let's dive into this. Often 
we have spent time talking to people who have been in the sickle cell world for, you know, decade, two decades, three decades, in the case of Wally Smith recently. Uh, but today we're talking to a rising star and, and we're talking to somebody who's um, really making a name for herself really quickly. I have spent a lot of time getting to know uh, this, this guest over Twitter, actually, of all places. And that's a little side note to all of the um, doctors out there to, to be on social media and interact with your colleagues because you never know what kind of collaborations you're going to end up having. And I'm sure Dr. Mike has seen this guest of ours all over the Twitter sphere. We are just really exceptionally um, happy that Dr. Cecil Jacob decided to join us today uh, from, Riley Children's from Riley Children's Hospital, which is a beautiful hospital. We are so excited that you are here, Dr. Jacob. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate that. I, uh, I think that the best place to start, actually, is to let the Warriors know who Dr. Jacob is. Um, where did this all start? What is, what is your story? So I'm uh, just a small town Indian girl that uh, grew up in the Midwest, um, pretty much, and did most of my training really between Ohio, Indiana, and Pittsburgh. And I think I started to get interested in sickle cell disease in particular during medical school. And it sounds a little cliche, but I am truly that person who spent some time with my mentor and um, in clinic and saw his interactions with his sickle cell patients and families and just was sold in that moment. That was everything that I wanted to experience as a physician and combined with sort of the excitement of the science behind it, there was no going back for me. And so from that moment, I um, sought out opportunities to learn more about sickle cell disease, to be mentored by sickle cell providers and to eventually build a career. That's great. You know, I, I often find that people who uh, get interested in hematology, it's an early experience like medical school. So who was that great mentor? Yeah, it was Dr. Mukundole, um at Dayton Children's uh, in Ohio. And he was just phenomenal. The connection that he had with his patients, families, with his team, that dedication to sickle cell disease and to improving their care was obvious. Yeah, th those kind of experiences are unforgettable. From their residency at Riley? Yeah, residency at Riley in Indianapolis. And there I had a mentor, uh, Dr. Monica Hulbert. Um, she's no longer at Riley. Yeah, that wash you now, yeah? She is, she is. And um, as you guys know, she's a powerhouse. And was a great female mentor for me as well. Really showed me how you can do meaningful uh, clinical research in sickle cell disease. I, I totally, I'm listening to you and I'm sort of thinking about uh, my own path and how I was influenced by mentors. And it's so important, right, to have that. And people like that, like Dr. Hulbert is just the nicest, like, most intelligent, well-spoken, you know, sickle cell doctor, um, and and she's uh, she's she's pretty phenomenal. So that 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 that's really cool. So you go for you go to Riley, and then you end up at actually a really kind of like a powerhouse sickle cell place. I ended up at Pittsburgh for fellowship and went to Pittsburgh when uh, Dr. Krish um, was still the director of the sickle cell program there. Yeah. And, you know, you listen to Krish talk about sickle cell and 
you can hear the passion in every word that he speaks. And that's an amazing experience, I think, as a trainee to to hear that in someone, someone's experience and in someone's sort of uh, voice. And he helped me see that even the most difficult of things can be accomplished if you think it's important and you're passionate about it and you're able to show others how passionate you are about it as well. Yeah, Chris is always working with trainees. Yes. Uh, you can tell generous people when they're always working with trainees. And then you worked also with Greg Caddo and uh, Mark Gladwin there. Yeah, exactly. Um, Greg was my primary research mentor at Pittsburgh and um, really brought me into sort of the sickle cell sphere and um, not only mentored me research-wise, but was truly a sponsor for me and in the world of hematology, helped me meet others who were doing great things uh, in collaboration with individuals like Cheryl Hillary, um, who was also at Pittsburgh, I think really helped shape my sickle cell training and my future sort of going forward. And, and that was like uh, genomics. You were working on genomics and uh, modifiers of sickle cell. And I, I saw a paper about thrombospondin one variants. How, how did you get into that? Was that like your main project? And uh, you know what was going on there? Yeah, it was my main project. And um, once upon a time, I thought I was going to be this translational researcher and wanted to build that experience and understanding on the bench side of things so that I could be that clinical arm of um, the translational research uh, that I did and um, learned a lot from Greg from his lab about um, thrombospondin, about genomic research, about SNPs. And I think that was a great foundation for me, um, helped me learn, understand a lot about research in general. As that went along, I realized that my passion really was focused on the clinical outcomes my patients were experiencing, the care that they were or were not able to access, and um, the quality of that care as well. Um, but I, the experience I had with, with Greg and with his lab is irreplaceable. Yeah, I think even if you don't go into those fields, a lot of times that background and that way of thinking is really helpful. Absolutely. Especially in sickle cell disease. I feel like it all sort of blends together and being able to understand that well helps you sort of on the other end um, clinically with your patients as well. So, I mean, clearly your path to, 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 to where you are right now has been one that's just been covered with all, like sort of these, these, these jewels of people and obviously have set you up in, in a direction where you're, you're ready to succeed. And, and, you, and you really, your passion comes across so clearly. Thank you. And I think that that's just so important for the patients to see because the road to trust and rebuilding what patients with sickle cell disease feel like doctors are or should be gets lost when you don't have that human aspect to your care. Um, so, so thank you for bringing that back a little bit. And, and, and you're bringing it back with data, which is, which is super cool. Tell us a little bit about health services research. You know, talking about how I realized that I was more excited about the outcomes my patients were experiencing and the care that they were accessing and the quality of that care, I became exposed to this concept of health services research. 
and remembered someone from my training as a resident, Erin uh, Carroll, um, who is now my health services research mentor here at Riley, whose focus was really on health policy, health advocacy, and healthcare quality, and tried to figure out how I could find a world a spot in that world. And so when it came time to look for jobs, Riley had an opening and I met with Aaron and um, it was awesome to hear from someone not in the hematology realm who was as excited about the things that I was passionate about merely because it meant better care for people, right? And um, that's, that's what I needed to hear. Um, and so he's helped mentor me over the years that I've been here at Riley to sort of build my advocacy efforts, focus on how to improve access to care for patients with sickle cell disease, thinking about what it is that makes their care better or worse, um, what's important to my patients, and how we can then inform um, providers, the community, um, sort of the world at large about about these things. Those are great projects because even when they don't, you know, maybe get a statistically significant end, a lot of times you, in the meantime, have helped out patients. So it's a win-win. And uh, a lot of these questions are just so important and they're, you know, immediately applicable to patient care. So tell us a little bit about how, how, how does your day look as a sickle cell doctor at Riley Children's? I start my days pretty early, usually trying to read up on new data that's out there, exciting new literature that's being published by my colleagues. So you're a, mor- you're a morning person, I gather. I am very much a morning person. Things slowly decline as the day goes on, I'll be, I'll be honest. My team is used to getting emails from me at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, they just know that's when they'll, they'll hear sort of the initial uh, rush of Sheathel's emails, um, and they're used to that. And then from there, I usually move into different programmatic meetings, whether it's um, multidisciplinary meetings with other subspecialists and figuring out how we can provide the best care for our sickle cell population, how we can collaborate, um, those types of things, and then moves into usually research meetings. So um, discussions with our community partners about advocacy efforts, discussions with our research team about our telemedicine uh, work or discussions with the ED, for example, about some of our pain management focus as well. I do clinic a couple of times a week. Um, That clinic is a combination of in-person clinic um, where we're a multidisciplinary team uh, that comes together um, for our patients. And then the other day of clinic that I do is focused on telemedicine, actually. So trying to reach the corners of the state to make sure that we can provide access for all of our patients. And you were doing that before it was popular or before COVID doing research on it. I was like the the lone person in Indiana that was excited about telemedicine <laughs> before before COVID started. I actually got interested in that while I was still at Pittsburgh. It's one of the things that Cheryl Hillary worked with me on. And there, the infrastructure for that was here at Riley when I came but we definitely weren't doing it within hematology or oncology, let alone within sickle cell disease. Um, But we have a a very rural part of the state and a lot of patients that live far from 
um, any sickle cell center. And we piloted it out in uh, a small town on the southwestern side of the, the state. And wouldn't you know it, all those families that were lost to follow up started coming to visits. We were able to put patients on hydroxyurea. They were um, more than inherent and more than excited to be able to participate in their care because we, we paid attention to what the barrier was and we did something about it. That's awesome. Yeah, we didn't really have telemedicine here until COVID hit and uh, Dr. Z became our local telemedicine expert. He got it figured out between March 17th and March 19th and we started doing <laughs> it, but we could, we could definitely learn from, from your experience. It's great. Telemedicine is a great tool, I think. Um, you know, there's limitations to everything. There's limitations to the in-person care that we provide. And there's a little bit of a learning curve there to make sure families still feel engaged and connected with you. But, you know, I think the gratitude that they feel for you looking to meet them on their terms sort of overpowers any any hesitation they might have. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of this little rectangle that we all <laughs> that we all hold on to. And, and I really think the more that we're inside of patients you know, little little mobile device, the more we're going to be able to connect with them. And, and, and telemedicine is just one avenue of that. But the truth of the matter is that the education required for sickle cell disease to be properly thought of, to be properly cared for, that education from a patient level, from a colleague level, that requires more than 20 or 30 minutes with a patient. So, so that type of a thorough approach really requires um, beyond just getting in through that telemedicine visit, but really reaching out to your patients um, regularly via social media, just like you are, and, and, and reaching out to colleagues, just like you are, and um, changing opinions, just like you are, which is phenomenal. I'm, I'm really excited about the, this paper discussion, and I'm not trying to jump ahead so I'm trying, I'm like biting my tongue because I have so many questions about it. So I keep catching myself like, oh man, I can't, I can't ask her about this yet. I don't want to spoil <laughs> it. So tell me this, tell me a little bit about, you know, because you're so enthusiastic about sickle cell disease, you're on the, you're, you're on the junior side as I, as I am. And, and how, how is like the dynamics within your hospital, within your division, are people like, oh man, Sheetal is driving us bananas. Like, is she talking about sickle cell again? You know, like, how do you get people to be on your wavelength? I'm sure people see me coming sometimes and they're like, oh no, not Sheetal again. She's going to talk to us about sickle cell and why we need to do better and all of those things. And I'm okay with that. I think the very fact that they see me and they identify me with talking about our sickle cell population is actually a win because I'm at least they're talking about it. At least that makes them think about it. That's great, in my opinion. I do think there were some hurdles to overcome at coming in junior, fresh out of fellowship, and all of a sudden I'm telling people how they should be caring for a large population of patients in our hospital. And not everybody liked that, but I think um, my approach was very much of, you know, we're in this together. And I'm not coming to you as the sickle cell director to say that you're doing it all wrong and um, you need to do it my way, but more of how can we make sure that together the care that we're providing is evidence-based, it's quality, and it's what our patients actually want. Um, and I think that was enough to get people engaged and on board with that. That's awesome. No, I mean, hats off to you. Hats off to you. That is, uh, it's not easy. It's not, the reason I, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because it's really not easy to, 
get people excited about sickle cell disease. That's a, that's, that's a win. You're right. Are you seeing lots of interest from medical students, residents who, who want to be involved in, and acknowledge and appreciate the excitement around sickle cell disease these days? So it, that's definitely something that I've appreciated from, you know, when I'm on inpatient service and covering sort of all of hematology, it's an opportunity. We have a lot of learners, right? Indiana University, largest medical school in the country. So it's, it offers an opportunity to educate all of these young, fresh minds about sickle cell disease and to sort of as much as possible display that passion I have about it in the hopes that one of them will feel like I did as a medical student and get really excited and jazzed about, about pursuing a career in sickle cell. And I think you, Amar, had made, um, you had tweeted about um, being on rounds and having the opportunity to teach the residents about not just sickle cell disease, but bringing up sort of the topics of racism and health equity surrounding it. And it's, it absolutely is sort of an opportunity to talk about that in an open um, setting. And I have gotten a lot of great feedback from learners that they've appreciated having those discussions um, outside of a classroom setting. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think we talk about the biopsychosocial sort of um, devastation of sickle cell disease. Um, we definitely, we definitely are not working hard enough to talk about the psychosocial stuff, but now, now more than ever, the talk of racial health disparities is just so important. And this is a disparities disease and it should be discussed and, 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 and those uncomfortable conversations uh, need to become a little bit more comfortable. I, I firmly believe in that. So Dr. Jacob, I am just, once again, uh, I am thankful to have found somebody whose energy I can feel. Even though you are 500 miles away, I can feel your energy and I love that. Um, and I hope that that persists and I hope you continue to push. And I am so excited to have Dr. Mike navigate with you through your most, recent, your most recently published work. Um, so, so, so if you guys don't mind, can we jump into our next segment? Yeah, I think that sickle cell is in a great spot and it's because of you know both of you and a lot of other young people who have really jumped in with two feet and are doing great things and i know you guys are going to for decades and uh, really make an impact on the on the field and make patients lives better so um thanks for thanks for what you guys do thanks again to our episode sponsor global blood therapeutics Visit GBT.com to learn more about GBT's commitment to advancing the treatment and care of people affected by sickle cell disease. We wanted to talk today about one of your manuscripts that we were really excited about. It's called Emergency Department Provider Survey Regarding Acute Sickle Cell Pain Management. And it was in the Journal of Pediatric Hematology Oncology just uh, recently. You are the senior author on this, so you're the last author, and that means you're kind of the boss of this. Can you give us a little background? What what got you into this uh, survey, and and uh, what was the what was the main question you guys were trying to answer? So I have to say, while I'm the last author, the the main driver of it is the first author, um, Dr. Funke Martin, who um, was a resident with me at the time and is now a 
pediatric hematology oncology fellow in DC. Um, super proud of her. She's a superstar. You know, the the reason why we sort of developed interest in uh, doing this study in the first place was basically listening to to our patients, right? So our patients are telling us that, you know, they're coming to the ED in severe pain, they're spending hours there, not getting that much pain relief, only to then get admitted and feel like they're already behind. And then we're working to sort of catch up. And so I heard that and thought, well, obviously, we have to do something and, and fix it, right? Typical sort of Western medicine physician, I was like, yeah, I need to, what can I prescribe? How can I, how can I make this better? What band-aids can I put on it? And so I called up, you know, uh, Dr. Sean Thompson, who's a co-author on the article and is an ED physician at Riley, um, and a, a friend of mine. And I said, hey, so what's going on? What, you know, what, what do you guys typically do when a sickle cell patient comes in? You know, my patients are telling me it's taking hours. Can we, make some sort of algorithm or guideline and get people to, you know, meet these standards. And he was like, yeah, she's all definitely. I'm, I'm all about that. What are these standards that you're talking about? That's such an important question. I mean, uh, I have heard that story a few times. How about you, Dr. Z? Way too many to count. So I, you know, I think this is a, a nationwide thing. And, and, uh, so, you know, how can we address it? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's when I realized sort of what I thought was the problem and the intervention probably wasn't the first step in this. And I actually needed to understand what do our providers actually know about managing um, acute sickle cell pain in the ED. And that's where we we started with this this survey, developing this survey. And you know, it, it quickly came to our realization that it's not enough to understand what the emergency department physicians know, but also what the ED nurses know, because they're the real drivers of this care. And what do our resident trainees know? Because we have over 200 trainees that make their way through the emergency department and maybe sort of the future of sickle cell care. And so we, we need to understand that as well. And so Dr. Martin, you know, scoured the literature. Are there surveys like this out there that we could adapt? And, um, you know, has anybody looked at this? And we quickly realized that we weren't making those assessments and created a survey that combined what we knew from the NHLBI guidelines about um, acute management of sickle cell pain, as well as questions that would help us get to, you know, how comfortable providers were in providing sickle cell care. That's where this survey was developed. It, and, you know, I think people hear about surveys all the time and maybe they take a survey here or there, but there's really a lot that goes into that. I mean, you need to um, develop questions that are very clear, that people give answers that are really what they mean to say in the question, that have all of the possible answers. But if you leave people open-ended, you get all sorts of crazy answers and you can't analyze it well. So tell me about the process of making that and how did you decide what questions stayed in? You want to keep it short enough that people will do it, but get the things answered you want. That's It's it's a huge process. I think people don't appreciate how much work goes into these. It's a science. It's truly a science. Absolutely. It is. And it's a science that I feel like I'm still learning and understanding for sure. Um, and others that do it much better than, than I. We started with a close to 50 questions and um, knew it had to be pared down because no one has time to take a 50-question survey. Especially ER doctors. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the questions we pulled from, like I said, 
were knowledge questions based on the NHLBI guidelines. There was a provider survey out there that looked a little bit at provider comfort. So we added some of those questions in and then added some questions that were specific to our institution, um, as well as some demographic questions. And then we had to pilot it. So we piloted it with some of my colleagues who are not ED physicians to see if the questions still made sense to them. We piloted it with some of our trainees and from that, we're able to sort of rephrase the questions, pare it down as well. We really wanted it to be like no more than five or 10 minutes um, because we, we wanted to value their time. Ultimately came up with the 23 question survey that we used. Great, and then was that like on SurveyMonkey or one of these online things, or did you have printed ones and track them down in the ER and, and have them fill them out. Your guys' ER is probably similar, but our ER has papers everywhere. So we knew that wasn't going to work. Um, we used SurveyMonkey to electronically deliver, and then it allowed us to track you know, the responses that we were getting to. I think that's the thing that uh, people who don't do a lot of survey research uh, is often shocking is you, you really, in order for the results to be valid, you need to get most of the people you're trying to survey Otherwise, you might be only getting like the people who care about sickle cell who are answering it, and they're going to do a lot better than the people who don't care enough to fill out the survey. So that can kind of bias your survey. So being able to even see who got the email and who answered the question, you can figure out what percent of people did and um, and those kind of things. So is that something you tracked, and did you get a pretty good response? We were trying to get a pretty good response from all three of those groups, right? The attendings, the residents, and their nurses. We knew that overall our response rate from the resident trainees was probably going to be smaller just because those that were on their ER rotation at the time were more likely to respond. So, and we were accepting of that. It's a large sort of trainee group. We wanted enough of a representative sample of the attendings and the nurses that we felt like this was an adequate response rate. I think ultimately it would have been nice to have an even better response rate than we had, but um, when you just look at the ED staff attendings and the ED nurses, the response rate was close to 40%. The number of trainees that responded brought that down to about 25%, a little bit less. But still, you got a pretty good number of people. You got 52 respondents and about a quarter of them were attendings, about uh, 60% residents and about 15% uh, were nurses. Yeah. At the end of the day, it was still a good group to sort of have surveyed. And so, uh, you know, for the warriors who might not know, the NHLBI guideline is uh, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, one of the National Institutes of Health, and they put together an, you know, an expert panel of um, sickle cell providers throughout the country to figure out, you know, based on all of the published studies, what is the best management for sickle cell in a lot of different situations, and then they publish that guideline. And if there isn't any data, there hasn't been a good study done on something, then often they'll sort of take a poll of experts and say, what do you do for this? What do you do for this? And that's, we would say that's not as good evidence, but it's, it's acceptable. And then uh, they say, you know, this is how the experts would do it, or this is what the data shows. And they sort of weight um, how important those are. And so for the ER, what were those, what were those major um, recommendations from the guideline. The first thing that was really important was um, what level patients are triaged at when they come in with acute pain. 
So recognizing that this isn't a patient that is triaged at a level five, which is sort of like the least acute concern and um, not necessarily a trauma patient, so not triaged at a level one, but still a patient that requires prompt attention and care. Um, and the NHLBI says those patients should be triaged at a level two. So that triage is like there's a person at the beginning of the ER that you meet and if you got a axe sticking out of your head, they say, oh, we got to get you back right away. You're a level one. And if you say, you know, I got a hangnail that I've been dealing with for five weeks to say, oh, you're a level five, you can wait till somebody's free. So you wanted, you wanted them to say sickle cell is really important, maybe not axe in the head important, but pretty close to that. And we need to get you seen right away. And so that's one thing that we really wanted to make sure did our providers understand that um, there's a there's a reason for that or that these patients should be triaged at a, at least a level two. The other thing that was really important is sort of time to first dose of pain medication. That time varies a little bit based on, you know, whether it's time from when they registered or time from when they're initially triaged. And according to the NHLBI guidelines, that time frame should be a 30 to 60 minutes. So 30 minutes from triage, 60 minutes from registration should be the maximum amount of time for that first dose of analgesia. Is that something you guys have been tracking in your ER? Yeah, so it has been. And something that we looked at sort of retrospectively too, to give us a little bit of understanding of how we had been doing about that. But yes, it has been something we've been tracking and continue to track now. Great. So triage, high priority and treat pain rapidly. Exactly. And frequently reassess. So we wanted to know how often or did providers understand how frequently they should be reassessing a patient's pain um, so that if intervention was necessary, they could do something. Um, and according to the NHLBI guidelines, that should be anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes between doses of IV medication. That's amazing to me because I think that I would guess that the, the chance of that happening nationally is zero. So I'm excited to hear what, what you guys found. So, so you asked those providers, how do you do this? Are you, what level do you triage at? How fast do you need to get the pain medicines in? How often do you have to reassess? And then you also asked them, how good do you think you are at treating sickle cell, right? Yeah, we did. Because we thought, you know, it's important for us to know how they're responding to these questions. But it's also important to understand their perception of the care that they are able to provide, right? Because regardless of their answers, that's going to play a big role in the, the care moving forward. And so we did. We asked them how comfortable did they feel managing an acute pain crisis in a patient with sickle cell disease. And these are de-identified surveys. Correct. So that, that means you, they don't have the person's name on it when you get, when you get the survey results, you don't know it was Dr. Smith. Absolutely. We do not know any of that. Um, we just know if they're an attending, a nurse, or a resident. So, so hopefully that makes them answer more honestly. They don't want to say, oh, I'm going to say I know a lot about sickle cell because I want to impress Dr. Jacob or, you know, I, I, I really, really don't think I know that much about it, but, uh, but I, I don't want to sound dumb or something. It's anonymous, so they don't have to worry about that. Absolutely. We wanted them to feel 
as though they could respond as truthfully as possible. Great. And so the results, I think, are not super surprising. I know a few ER doctors, and they're quite a confident group. I think our, you know, as we discussed earlier, our patients' experiences that all of these things are not happening as they should. So um, is, is that what the survey showed? It did. Um, I think what was probably most surprising to us, while it's true, most of the EED physicians I know are, are confident and they should be for what they do. I was surprised at how many did say that they felt um, very comfortable managing acute pain and sickle cell disease. When you looked at the sort of the staff percentage and the nursing percentage of how many people reported a high comfort level. I mean, we're talking about in the 80% or higher range, which felt huge to us. And that was probably the the thing we were surprised at the most. That is surprising. I mean, I, I, there are times when I don't feel that comfortable managing VOC pain after 20 years. And then I, I think this was Dr. Z's favorite part of the study. That had really nothing to do with knowing anything about actually managing pain, or at least the guidelines, knowing the, the, the way the guidelines are written, how they should be implemented. Correct. There was no association with how comfortable they were and whether or not they actually knew how quickly pain medication should be administered, how frequently pain should be reassessed, even sort of initial a triage level, those types of things. That is so mind-blowing, though. I'm still, I mean, that is just, I don't have words. I'm very, very infrequently am I rendered speechless. But like, this is really one of those times because you're showing that you have people who are confident in their ability to, 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 a, to a majority of your respondents, really, saying that they're comfortable. And then you have the same people really just showing that they're not adept, they're not able to to do this. I think one of the more frightening things was about a quarter of the people said vital signs are important to measuring pain, and uh, more than 10% weren't even using patient reported pain or using pain scores. Remind me, remind me the number on that, on the vital signs thing. Remind me the number. So it said uh, a, a a fourth of all respondents appropriately did not use vital signs as an indication of patient's pain. So, so 75% so were. We're saying, yeah, we're saying uh, that, you know, you needed to know the vital signs to see if someone's in pain. And we all know from sickle cell that you know, a lot of patients, there's no change in their vital signs, even in excruciating pain. You know, how many times do our patients tell us, you know, that someone told them, oh, you, you're your exam and your vitals don't tell us you're in pain or your labs don't show us that you're having a bad pain crisis. It can't be that bad. And exactly what they're telling us was illustrated in the survey, right? It, these providers are saying, oh yeah, of course we use vital signs to determine if a sickle cell patient is in a pain crisis or not. You know, the best part about all of this to me is that you and your ER colleague are saying, you know what, we're okay showing you that this is the deficit and and what we're going to do to address this deficit because i feel like there's a lot of people out there that would say are you crazy there's no way that we're going to tell people that we have this deficit or that we have these blinders on um so hats off to you guys for for being able to do that and being able to show this and 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 being able to chart out a a road forward. I, I think that's the big thing too. When you identify something like this, 
then you can address it. Now you can go in and say to the ER providers, even the 54% who uh, think that they're already good at managing VOC, you can say, you know, there's a guideline and uh, this is what it says and this is what you guys are doing. And I, I think, you know, most of these providers are really well-intentioned people who want to do the best thing for their patient and they have to treat a million different diseases. So, you know, they don't probably have time to read all of the sickle cell literature all of the time. But I think if you come to them and say, we identified this deficit and here's how you can fix it, there's an opportunity. And it helps all of us at our institutions too. So really great, great work. Thank you. I do really appreciate my ED colleagues and it sort of spurred interest in the ED itself and brought more champions to the cause and um, is hopefully going to make some big improvements in the care that we provide moving forward. That's huge. So what are the next steps? I was just going to ask that, man. <laughs> next steps have already started to happen. So we, that, that same care algorithm and um, EMR order set that we wanted to create, we did. And um, we implemented with some coordinated education for all three of those groups and have been doing that for the past um, 10 months and have been slowly collecting that data. We have a few more months worth of data that we'd like to collect, but already the time to first dose of analgesia has rapidly decreased. More than 75% of our patients um, during that time frame are, are meeting the 30 to 60 minute goal, which is amazing. And um, even the time that our patients are spending in the ED is becoming less which is another important thing because our, our patients don't want to spend all day in the ED. They want to either get, they want to get the care that they are looking for and that they deserve efficiently and adequately, and then either be able to go home or get admitted if that's, and to continue their pain management if that's what they need. And so that transition of care is happening much more efficiently as well. That's super important. I mean, I think that would be a great thing to publish because I know so many ER directors um, you know, they want to help patients. But if you say, I can get patients out of your ER quicker, they're going to jump at whatever they can do to do that. So um, I think that'd be really an incentive. I'm going to go tell our ER guys that. So so the EMR, the electronic medical record, you made sort of a computer pathway. So if a doctor sees a patient with sickle cell in a crisis, they can go in and use this sort of checkbox thing to get everything ordered and started right away. Exactly. Um, you know, our emergency department can't do sort of nurse-initiated pain orders. And so this allows for a more rapid um, ordering and administration just because it's something that they can quickly check through and um, not waste a lot of time in a very busy emergency department. That's great. Are you using intranasal fentanyl to do some of that or is it mostly IV payment? Yeah, we are using intranasal fentanyl, which is another thing we're hoping to sort of publish the results of soon. Um, I, there's been sort of varying reports of its benefits and sort of reducing time to analgesia and sort of length of stay, but our patients overwhelmingly have said they've they actually very much appreciate it because you know they're in excruciating pain people are trying to find an iv yeah that's always a barrier it's hard to get that iv started and you have to get a better phlebotomist to come try and you know just delay in the time until you get relief i want to i want to circle back to sort of a a tough question that 
is um, still important, I think. I often get this question from people, and I, I like to ask other sickle cell providers how they would answer it. Patients who are in areas of the country that are not so populated with sickle cell disease warriors often ask me, what type of things should I ask my hospital system to advocate for myself? So in a place where there is not a Sheetal Jacob, what type of questions should a patient advocate be, be asking their hospital system? What type of advice, how would you answer that question? Knowing what you know now, knowing what you found in your research, um, how, would you, how would you advise a patient like that? That's a great question. And I'm, I feel like I'm not going to do it justice. But I think one of the most important things that we uh, continually talk to our patients about, right, and wanting them to uh, be able to advocate for themselves when they leave sort of our system someday and have to go out into the adult world is advocating for the hospital system to recognize their one, recognize their disease. You know, sickle cell disease is real. You may not see it on me, but I live with it every day. And to recognize their pain as real and to have the ability to uh, appropriately advocate for the pain management that they that they know works for them and that they deserve. I think that's hard. I know it's hard for a lot of our patients, especially in these um, areas where there aren't a lot of sickle cell patients or a lot of sickle cell providers for individuals, especially in the midst of, you know, the opioid epidemic to understand that if my patient asks for specific medication or a dose of medication, it's not because they're um, drug seeking. It's because they've lived with this all their life and have experienced this multiple times and they know what works well for them. That's not unlike other chronic diseases where patients often educate the providers uh, that they see about their specific disease. No, that's, that, I mean, that's, that's really, it's really good to hear because I feel like all of us answer this question very similarly. I'm struggling a little bit locally to figure out how to get my patient's voice back to my institution. And, and I'm not sure the best way to make that happen. So if any bright ideas come your way, you're doing something innovative, share it with us. Because I think all of us as providers, we're all sort of back of the bus um, when we take care of sickle cell patients. We're, we're, we're not as important for our institutions. Our patients certainly are not. Uh, so having that fight is um, sometimes lonely. Um, so I think if, if something's working at one of our institutions, we should definitely share that. Absolutely. Well, it has been 60 minutes that we have uh, wasted of yours. You have taken graciously taken 60 minutes out of your very busy day um, to sit down with us and, and tell us a little bit about what's happening in Indianapolis. And it was such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for joining us. And I think that once this COVID nonsense is done, we got to get you here to do grand rounds and talk to our, our folks and, 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 you know, enlighten them a little bit about what you've learned. Um, thank you for asking tough questions and for being vocal for our patients. So for the warriors out there who are listening, 
You can follow Dr. Jacob at... Yeah, it's Shethel underscore Jacob MD on Twitter. So follow her, follow Riley Children's, and you should you should keep an eye on this rising star because she's going to make some noise before it's all said and done. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. That was a great episode, Dr. Z. I liked having a rising star. It was a great talk in what's happening. We've walked through all the all the people in the neighborhood in the hospital and uh, talked about a, a really interesting study in the ER. Yeah, I really think that this rising star thing should become something we do because there's a lot of them out there. And um, I think it's important for the warriors to know that we're trying to change the narrative. We're trying to change the narrative from doctor versus patient to doctor and patient versus sickle cell disease. And there's a lot of good guys and girls on, on, on the provider side. And you just got to know them and you got to be able to find them. And uh, people like uh, Dr. Sheetal Jacob at Riley Children's is one. Um, so you've got a friend in Indianapolis and at Riley Children's Hospital. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And I really hope that you guys are going to share this episode with someone who you think could learn about sickle cell disease and I also hope that you'd follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And I'm going to have to get on Instagram, Dr. Z, but I'm on Twitter at, at Humagineer. As of a month ago, we have a cheat codes Instagram at cheat codes pod. Follow that and let us know if you want to um, jump on a live with us on Instagram to talk sickle cell. We're always happy to do that. But for now, just keep crushing it. Keep living well with sickle cell. Keep doing your thing. Stay happy. Stay safe. Have a good sickle cell awareness month. Yeah. Take care, y'all. Peace. <laughs>